Hey, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Today is our last series, last message of our Timeless Testament series. We have been uh, in this series for over a year. Can you believe it? And uh, I have just grown, I feel I've grown deeper just going through these timeless testaments of Scripture, seeing God and Jesus lived out in, in a dynamic way through these radical stories of faith. And this morning we're going to talk about arise and build. What does it mean to be a working and a warring church? Arise and build. Amen. What is, it, uh, what is the church really all about? What is the church really all about? D.L. Moody is a famous American evangelist after the Civil War, one of my heroes. And uh, he was known for his prayer. He was known for his timeless, uh, sorry, his tireless work. I mean, this guy would work, uh, burn the candle on both ends, right? He was just uh, go, go, go. And he said once, a great many people have got a false idea about the church. They've got an idea that church is a place to rest in to get into a nicely cushioned pew, to contribute to the charities, to listen to the minister and do their share to keep the church out of bankruptcy. And that's all they want. The idea of work for them, actual work in the church, never enters their minds. I don't think much has changed since the uh, post-Civil War era as far as what Americans have uh, begun to understand the church to be. In fact, George Barna in 2011 polled the American church and Uh, He said that 47% of Christians said going to church uh, for a worship service was for their benefit. 47% thought going to church was to help me in my life and get better. And and we know that that's part of that. And 29% said they didn't know who it was for. They didn't really know why we're there, I guess. 29%, so 45, uh, 47 said it was for them. And 29% said it didn't know who it was for. And only 24% said worshiping in a worship service was for God. That's the American church today. Maybe you, we don't see the whole picture. Maybe we've got a great church family here. But in the corporate sense of America, only 24% of Christians coming to a regular worship service believe that that worship service is all about Jesus. We have a very me mentality and a very individualistic mentality. And in fact, I call it nominal Christianity. I looked up that word this week, nominal. Nominal means existing in name, nom, existing in name only. It means that it is not real. It's a theoretical idea. Uh, For instance, so nominal Christians would be those who express Christianity, but their values don't match up to when we see what we see in Scripture. Uh, You can make allowances for inconsistencies in your life. And one uh, dictionary said it's the approximate to the real thing. When we look at Scripture, when we look at Acts, and we look at the early church, would you say that we're only approximate to the real thing in American church? When I read about Paul and Silas showing up at a place, and in the book of Acts it said, hey, these men who have troubled the world have come here. Do we have that reputation as the American church? If not, we're nominal Christianity. We have the name, but we're just similar to the real thing. We've made inconsistencies, allowances for not living up to what God has put in his word. And we've said it's okay to come to church and, uh, you know, get about me, get my fix, focus on me. Thank you, pastor, for that word. Thank you, worship team. And if it's not a good word or if it's not a good worship team, I'm going somewhere else to find something that fits me. Woo, we're going to preach today. Y'all ready? 
Here's the question for us is if you and I would move from this community, if we would move maybe from this church, would there be an impact? Would anyone notice if Sanctuary Family Worship Center shut down its doors? Would this church family notice if you moved away? Would we be lesser for it? You know, Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It means that it would be a church that was in a war to rescue lost sinners. He pictured a church that was storming the gates of hell to rescue people. Jude said that we should snatch people out of the flames of hell, the flames of fire, even being just basically their their coattails would be burned and that we would hate the stench of hell, but we would be so close to the flames that we would pull people out with almost them being burned. That's the picture that Jude said of the early church. Paul said the church would be a temple fitted together in love, that we would be um, members bound together, rooted and mortared in love, and that every member would be a vital part of working to build God's temple, that if we were bricks on the wall, we would be mortared together, and every brick on that wall would matter because each one of us is a part of the temple, the living temple of God, and every member has a part of work. So when we think about church today, we're going to talk about the working and the warring church, a church that builds and a church that fights, and that you, if you confess Jesus Christ, are a part of that church. And it's a beautiful thing to be a part of. Somebody say amen. Let me give you the setting of Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, turn to me uh, to Nehemiah. It had been about 90 years since Cyrus of Persia, the king, uh, emperor of Persia, had let the first wave of Jews go back uh, to Israel, to Jerusalem. And following him, and, and take, Zerubbabel would go and he would start the first wave, and then Ezra would come, and Ezra would try to build, they would build the temple, and Ezra would come and try to bring a revival back to the word of God, but it would last for only a moment and it would fall away. And at this point, we are here in uh, the approximate time is uh, around 444 years before Christ. And Nehemiah is this man who now feels, he's the third one, now feels the call of God to go back uh, and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But this story is not just about a man building a wall. It's about a people whose hearts need to be rebuilt by God. And I want you to see that through this story. Uh, It's about a people who need to rebuild the walls around their own hearts uh, and become the temple of God. And Nehemiah, even at the very last part of the book, will look forward to a day when you and I are living, uh, that Jesus Christ would make you and I the living temple and that there would be a spiritual wall around our hearts. All right, so uh, let me give you the story. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. I'm going to talk to you about weeping and working and warring. Before we have work, we must have weeping. And while we're working, we will have warring. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. They said to me, the remnant in, uh, there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Here's this guy, okay, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king, all right, and he's in uh, Persia, and he's the cupbearer. The cupbearer is the guy who would taste test the wine before the king drank it, so in a way, 
you're kind of expendable, right? Uh, hey, try this drink, and if it's got poison, you'll die first. And I know I don't drink it, right? So you're kind of expendable. But at the same time, Nehemiah was a very educated man, a very trusted man. He was an advisor uh, to the king. Meanwhile, expendable. And here's this guy. He's living in a lush palace. He's got everything he wants. Uh, he, he could uh, just totally enjoy life. And he hears of this uh, horrid uh, position that the people are in, that they failed in their works. The temple was built, but it wasn't near as glorious as it was. The walls are still down. People are in distress. They're persecuted on every side. And he hears this, and it says that he sat down and wept, even fasting and praying for days. Even four months will go by, and Nehemiah is burdened, burdened for the people of God. Why? Why? He could have just said, you know, that's them. That was their choice to go. What is the deal? My life's good. I got it. I'm fine on me. But this whosoever, this Nehemiah, he was uh, in one sense a nobody. In one sense, he had great potential, but yet he was a praying man. He was a godly man. He was a man of character. And when he heard about the status of God's people, of God's building, of God's temple, it broke his heart. What about you and me today? And the status of the church, when we hear about churches closing, when we hear about pastors falling, when we hear about churches dividing, when we see gossip and dissension and racial division in the church, what does it do to us? Do we just say, well, you know, that's them, that's us, I'm me, I'm fine. Or does it break our heart? You know, he'd never been to Jerusalem, but yet he mourned night and day over a broken people. Even so much that he began to repent for himself and for the people of God. And, say, and he began to hold God to God's promises. And he said, God, you said if we would repent and turn from our wicked ways, you would heal our lands. And he was so holding God by faith to God's promises that God said, I can use a man like that. I can use a man like that. And at the right time, four months later, his countenance was so affected that his, his countenance was so affected, the king took notice. There's something wrong with you. And I wonder if we can just go to church so many times, and it's so much about us that we say, God, uh, would anybody notice that we have a burden for our community? Would anybody notice, looking around, does the world take notice and say, man, this is a Persian pagan king noticing there's something you're struggling with, that you have something going on. And he says, yes, I have a passion to see God's people built up. I have a passion for the things of God. I want to seek first the kingdom of God. And he says, he saw this and God began to work it out. And he says, here, we'll go. I will send you out. Take some of my soldiers with you. You can have access to the treasury and access to the lumber. And, he, and Nehemiah looks and he says, and the good hand of the Lord was upon me. He noticed that God was in this. And so he had interceded. You know, I think about Nehemiah, and it's not that, you know, he's a whosoever, he's interceding, but he wasn't just somebody like, like what we may encounter here today in the American church. Many people can have opinions. Many people can say, I like that, I like this, I wish church was this way, I wish church was that way. But God wasn't interested in using someone who just had an opinion or a thought. He was wanting to use someone who had some tears. He wanted to use someone who had some tears before work there must be weeping. In this moment, I think Nehemiah, God was giving him the burden to build. If you look in uh, that passage, 
uh, he, that he, he began to see the good hand of God was upon him. And in his weeping, all this began to come out of him. He had a burden to build. Paul said in Ephesians 3, he says, man, God can do exceedingly. He is a, a, able to do far more abundantly beyond all that you ask or think. But it's according to the power that works within you. It doesn't just mean that we do church by our own effort, that, that God was birthing something and burdening him and filling Nehemiah with the call of God to do something. We wonder, God, how can we affect change in our community? How can we affect change in our family? God, how can we see great revival come around? And maybe we're not even concerned about it. Lord, help us to get to that place. But Nehemiah, something happened inside of him. And the question I thought this week is, Heath, what are you watering with your tears? What seeds are you watering with your tears? What are we weeping over? The injustice or the, the, the deadness and the dryness and the religiosity. Why don't we see signs and wonders? Why don't we see mass salvations? Why don't we see the gifts of the Spirit in operation like they did in days of old? Because that's what we're promised. That's what we're called to live up to. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a nominal Christian. I don't want to just be a name only. I want to have a burden to build the kingdom of God on this earth. What seeds are you watering with your tears? So it began in weeping. And before you can ever get to working, you have to have weeping. We're not just going to hear it sanctuary. We're not just going to put people in a position because you have great gifts and you have great talents. But you have to have a burden of the Lord. We don't want you in kids ministry just because you have an education degree. But you have a burden for those kids. Amen? So he moves on to working. Look, look in chapter 2, verse 12. He arrives... Three days he rests, and it says in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 12, And I rose in the night, and a few men went with me. And I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. And Nehemiah begins to take the tour. He's waiting on God. He hasn't told anybody why he's there. Even the people who are with him didn't understand why we were going. And there was this secret vision, this secret thing that God had put inside of him, this dream that he had to do something great for God. And it says that he went around all of the gates and he made a tour in the middle of the night when nobody was around, just him praying with God. And it says that even the rubble was so bad that his donkey couldn't navigate through it and he had to skip some places. You know there are some churches, they're in so much disarray and rubble, it'd be hard-pressed to navigate through it. There are some areas and communities where religion has fallen apart and, and true Christianity has turned into rubble that you, you wouldn't even going to go into it, that you can't even go into them. Places where people are divided. Pastors are competing for church members. The worship is dead. And there's no evangelism because why? There's no vision. Why hadn't the people started building the walls? They were there. They had the resources. They didn't, they didn't have all the, the, the things that maybe Nehemiah would be giving, but they had people. There's about 50,000 people around that area that they expect at that time. And they'd done the temple. How come they didn't keep on going through walls? There's no vision. The Bible says when there's no vision, people perish. They're not holding on to the word of God. They're not holding to the promises of God. So Nehemiah had a dream. And it was birth of God from weeping. And he comes to the elders. And look at the next part. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17, he says, And I said to them, Do you see the bad situation we're in? That Jerusalem is desolate, the gates are burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. They will no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. And they said, 
let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Nehemiah comes and he basically says, guys, can't you see the enemy is mocking the people of God? Can't you see the people of God are in disarray? The spirits are down. There's brokenness. And in America, today, there's divorce and there's violence. And the same divorce record in the world is the same divorce record in the church. And there's still black churches and white churches. There's churches that don't believe in the gifts of the spirit for today. There's churches that never see a soul saved in a year. That They haven't seen the tank of the water baptisms dried up. There's no happening. Nothing's happening. Can't you see the enemy is mocking the church? Can't you see it's in disarray? And it says, it's a disgrace, Nehemiah says. It's a disgrace. But then he says, but let me tell you about God's grace. Let me tell you how God is working something out right now. Let me tell you how we, the people of God, have got favor from the king of Persia and how I have come and God has put it on my heart to do something and we together have got to rise up and build something great for God. And because it was in the timing of God, the people could have said, who is this outsider coming into us? You're not from here. You live in the palace. Who are you to say? They could have said, we've tried it before because they had through Ezra and it failed. They could have said all these excuses. You know, you can come to a church and you can come to a different place and you say, well, Pastor Heath, we've done that before. We've tried to do that. We've tried to get the churches to come together. We've tried to do those outreaches. We've tried those things. And they could have had every excuse to say, We've tried it. It's not going to happen. Where there's no vision, people perish. And he said, but then the Spirit of God moved on them. They said, let us arise and build. And they didn't just say it. It says they put their hands to the good work. Church, we've got to put our hands to the good work. Do we care about the church's reputation? For four years, we've been meeting with our leadership team, about 20 of us, meeting and praying every month vision casting, that God would do something great uh, in LaSalle Parish, Louisiana, even so much that uh, five and a half years ago, I was in my office, I was praying uh, as an associate pastor in Missouri, and I began to just receive a vision from God of building a church and what it would look like and the details of its ministries and, and how we would function at, and it would be a, a ministry to the, the, the city, a community center, and and a Holy Spirit hospital for the broken. And I told my youth pastor about it. I said, hey, man, uh, look at this thing. I just, I'm talking, I had pages and pages of notes that I got in a matter of five minutes. In five minutes, I just wrote pages and pages. And I filled up a whole chalkboard across the whole uh, Sunday school class of what I felt God had just given me. And he said, you know, that's not for this church, and it's not for right now. And he said, I want you to keep, you should keep that. I don't think that's for here. And I said, okay. And I actually put those notes, I put it in my file cabinet and shut the door, and it stayed there for months until I came here. You see, God wants to do something in LaSalle Parish, Louisiana. And, and we have been praying every Sunday night in every leadership meeting, that, uh, and I wrote down some goals even before I came that said, God, what do you want to do in this place? And I believe it's, He wants to create a united people who are striving for greater city and global impact. He wants to create a people who are rooted and grounded in love, that guard unity, that rebuke all forms of hypocrisy and legalism, who focus on the second coming of Jesus and are uncompromisingly set apart, that we'd be driven by God's mission and we corporately invest in missions and church planning, that we'd reflect on God's compassion, that we'd have ministries all across this area for meeting needs of our community. 
that we'd have the tangible presence, the bold empowerment, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit in all of our services and small groups and ministries, that we'd be a people that advance in spiritual warfare, deliver all types of darkness, and we'd measure spiritual fruitfulness, not religious standards or checklists. We want to be a people, likewise, that purposefully engage and equip and empower the next generation. That's what we're building. That's what it's about. We're not here to just have a church service. We're here to take back what the enemy has stole and remove the disgrace of the church because of God's grace that has been for us. So Nehemiah begins to see them put their hands to work, and he calls out the builders. And like any building project, guess what? Not everybody participated. Some of the nobles wouldn't participate. They they weren't into it. But Nehemiah began to use the regular people, the average people, the blue-collar people. Somebody say amen. He used the normal Joes. He used people uh, from all walks of life. He had goldsmiths. He had people that were perfumers. Made perfume. They began to work on the wall. He had a man who only had daughters, and he put his daughters to work. Somebody say amen. For guys, you only have girls. That's like me. You only got girls. Girls can do stuff that guys can do. And these daughters began to work. And they began to work together. And the high priest, he began to, and him and his brothers began to work on the sheep gate. And they began, and then Levites came beside him and worked on this part of the wall. And then even men from Jericho, men not even from the same town, heard about the vision. Come on, somebody. And they came and drove in, and they began to work on the wall. Even people who had backslidden in the days of Ezra came out to work on the vision of building God's walls. And all of this became around, and men who had houses next to the wall began to work on the wall outside of their house, and they would join to their neighbor, and their neighbor would come out and work on the wall next to his house, and they would work together that there'd be no gaps in the wall. If that doesn't preach alone right there, I don't know what does. There are 42 groups of people who helped on this. He says in chapter 4, verse 6, So the wall was built and the whole wall was joined together half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Oh, if we had a mind to work. Oh, the whole effort started with the sheep gate. You know why? Because the sheep gate is where the sacrifices would be brought in. Any working church must start with the sacrifice. Any working church must be built on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It starts there. And it was the high priest's responsibility to get that done. This church has got to be built on the blood of Jesus Christ alone that saves us from our sin, that brings us into right relationship with God. And then from the sheep gate and the sacrifice and starting there, it went on to the Levites and the Levites... The leadership uh, began to work on their part and do their part. And every person from then on said, I am responsible as a part of this community to do my part. I'm responsible for building up the wall around my house. There was even a group of people that said, because the the high priest is working on the sheep gate, we're going to go to his house and build up the wall around his house. That'll preach right there. I need all the prayer and help I can get for me and my family. Our leadership need help and prayer for them as they do the work. And all these people, the Bible says in Romans that, that every member matters. That we can't say to the eye and the hand that, you know, well, I'm better or different. Your gifts, no, we're all together. And every member of the church has a part. And every member is important to build up the wall around this community. Warren Wiersbe said, he said, no one can do everything but everyone can do something. Pastor can't do everything. Leadership can't do everything. But everyone can do something. 
Even if it's small, you can do something. So they had a working people of God. They had started with weeping, and then it went to working. They had their hands to work. They had their minds to work, and it was a part of them, and they were excited, and the vision was expanding, and it was people young and old, male and female, slave and free, people from off and people from within. How many know the devil is a, a liar, and he's in opposition? You know, they weren't without opposition in this. No good effort of God is going to come easy. They were in opposition. It was a warring group of people. You know, those who had taken over the land before and had been there in the absence of the people of God, they got pretty upset when Nehemiah came. In chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Sanballat, the Hornite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, they heard about it. They began mocking and despising them. You know what Nehemiah did? He rebuked them, and he refused to quit. He told them, you've got no place in the people of God or in Jerusalem. You've got no claim to this property right here. Sometimes when the enemy comes out to lie and stander you and tell you all kinds of bad things about yourself, you just need to put him back in his place. You've got no claim on my life. You've got no claim on my family. You've got no claim on my church. You don't have any say of what goes on in the house or or the family of God because we have been purchased by the King of Kings and the blood of Jesus. So he rebukes them. And he keeps working. You know, Nehemiah, just like today, the enemy has been benefiting from the status quo of the church, especially in our community. And I tell you, we're going to be fighting some not just flesh and blood, we're going to be fighting Satan and his demonic forces. So he told those people basically to watch and pray. You know, the more they worked, the anger the enemy got in chapter 4. They begin to start a rumor, and the enemy begins to start a rumor. We're coming to destroy you. We're coming to take you down. People got fearful. They got discouraged, and to the point they said, well, you know, we're not able to build the wall. Nehemiah, it's just too much. We're almost halfway done, but, man, they're coming. The enemy's on all sides. We've got the Arabs on one side, the Ammonites on one side. We've got Sanballat and the Samaritans on one. They're rumoring. They own this place. They've been here for years. They're bigger than us. I don't think we can do it. So Nehemiah, he called a prayer meeting. Mm. He called a prayer meeting. If you hadn't been to Sunday night prayer, you ought to be. He set up guards, not just a prayer meeting, but then he set up guards day and night. Chapter 4, verse 9. He posted armed families. Think about that. It wasn't professional soldiers. He posted armed families at every weak place in the wall. Every low point, every vulnerable point, he posted armed families, armed guards, night and day in the gaps. And he challenged them. He says, do not fear. The Lord fights for us. Verse 14. You know what happened then? Man, they just began to believe that God was on their side. And I don't know about you, but you and I need to be arming up our families that my daughter can fight spiritual things, that you and your wife, it's not just one spouse, it's all of us together, it's our young people. We all need to be armed up in the things of God, so much so that this people, it says that every single person had armor, had a sword, had a shield, had a spear or something. And those who were carrying one item had a sword in the other hand. And those who had to have like a bricklayer had to have both his hands free. He had a sword on his belt. He was ready. And all these people, and some people, were holding extra armor for those who had both hands to work, be ready when they need it. And Nehemiah says, and I've got the trumpet with me. And if you hear the trumpet, rally together. God's going to fight for us. Come on. 
There is a watching and a praying, a working and a warring that has to go on. That we are doing things together, building up the church, serving in ministry, praying for one another as well. This is the, the war, weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're divinely powerful. The destruction of us forces, right? And, and the Bible says in Ephesians, we're going to talk about it tonight, you know, that we have the sword of the Spirit, the armor of God. And as a church, we don't just need to be serving on different teams and ministries and outreaches. We've got to be praying for one another, standing in the gap for one another. If you're going through a hard time, it's my family's responsibility to sometimes hold some armor for you. To stand in the gap. Maybe there's a weak place like our children's ministry where Satan would love to get our kids or our youth ministry. That we could say, I as a people, we're standing in the gap for our teens. Maybe it's people in the community, the poor and the outcasts, the, dis, the downhearted, people who are addicts and nobody's caring about them anymore. They've, they've done too many uh, black marks on the record. They've hurt all their families. They've, nobody cares. They could be a church that says, I'm standing in the gap. And the vulnerable places. I'm interceding for those that's got nobody to intercede for them. And while you're working, brother, I'm going to be praying for you. And while you're serving, sister, I'm going to be praying for you. And my whole family is a praying family. Stand in the gap. But when he couldn't get them discouraged that way, and he saw that the whole people, it wasn't just an army of a ten or 10,000, you know, it was the whole community was armed. Come on, a whole praying church is an armed church. Every person praying in their prayer closets is an armed church. He began to attack the leadership. When you can't get the church, get the pastor. Get the leadership, get a board member, get a worship team member. So he began to write Nehemiah some nasty letters. He began to smear him, put, put all kinds of things about him in the newspaper. He sent him four letters. He said, hey, why don't you come out here and meet me alone? Nehemiah said, I'm smarter than that. I'm not coming out there alone. You're going to kill me. And on the fifth letter, he just slandered him. He wouldn't come to the fourth, so he slandered him in the fifth. And he said, I'm going to tell the king you're a rebel. You're doing this for your own power and pride. It's all about you. It's a Nehemiah show, and you're starting a mutiny. And he said, oh, God, strengthen my hands. He didn't defend himself. He didn't get into the drama, somebody. He didn't get into the drama. Somebody wants to smear you. Don't get into the drama. Don't try to defend yourself on Facebook. Don't try to write a letter defending and fixing their lies and slander. You just focus on Jesus. Nehemiah said, this is too important. I'm not getting my hands off of building this wall. I'm not stopping what Jesus has got going on here. I'm going to keep my hands to the plow. I'm moving forward. I'm not getting distracted to the right or the left. Well, that's what the enemy wants for you. He wants you to get distracted. So-and-so offended me. I can't do that ministry anymore. Oh, there's so much drama in that church. Yeah, there's drama in every church. Keep working. Somebody's going to offend you. Keep working. Oh, God, strengthen my hands. Then another man comes up to Nehemiah and he says, Hey, God gave me a word for you. You ought to watch out when people do that. God gave me a word for you. He said, You're going to be assassinated tonight. Let's go lock ourselves in the temple, which is a sin, by the way. He's not supposed to go in there. And, and God's going to protect you. Nehemiah got discernment from God, and he said, this guy is a liar. And he finds out he's been hired by the enemy so that he would bring accusation against Nehemiah. So Nehemiah falls away from that plot. Then Tobiah, that's what he begins to do. He begins to pick all the elders and the leaders. He begins to write them nice, beautiful letters how awesome of a guy he is and what his real intentions are and how he just cares about the people of God and he wants to see great things done. And in the meanwhile, you know what he's doing? On Nehemiah's side, he's writing nasty hate letters to Nehemiah. 
And the, the, the board members and the elders of the church and the leadership began telling the pastor, Nehemiah, you know, Tobiah is not really a bad guy. He, you know, he, these letters, he's doing all kinds of awesome stuff. You know, he's a caring man. He has good intentions. I don't think you understand him, Pastor. I don't think you understand what's going on here. And Nehemiah's like, I got a different perspective, y'all. This dude is a liar. He is sent by the enemy. And if, they, if, we, if the enemy can divide the people, he knows he'll win. There's sometimes there's things that come through the leadership, your small group leaders, the pastor's desk. There are people that the enemy sends into churches to divide them. I remember one time, uh, I don't want to go too long, I remember one time a young couple came to our young adult ministry, and this young couple came in, and they never really jived real well with, with Beth and I, and there was just something there spiritually. And every time I'd give an altar call, they'd be talking and, and never pray, and they were there. But every time a new person would come, guess what they'd do? They'd invite that new person over to their house, and they began to host things uh, and activities while we had church events at their house and contradict the church events and begin to try to pull people away. And I just began to pray, Lord, I rebuke the enemy in Jesus' name. You wouldn't, you wouldn't three months that couple was gone because God's people are under attack, but we have to be a people who are watching and praying. Let me tell you something. Spiritual leadership is no joke. Satan is a liar. And God has equipped our elders and our leadership team and our pastoral team, the Bible says, for the work of service to build up the body of Christ, that we wouldn't be tossed around by doctrine and trickery of men, or we wouldn't have crafty, deceitful scheming of the enemy, Paul says, but that we would be built up in love. Be careful of things that tear down. The Bible's all about building up. And then they begin to fight not only the outer things. If they couldn't get the people discouraged, if he couldn't get the leadership divided, then guess what he began to do? Fight within. There was an economic problem, and the people began to, the poor people were having trouble paying their bills, and some people had to sell land to pay the high taxes, and those, some people had to take out a loan. And meanwhile, these rich nobles were giving loans at high interest rates, and they couldn't feed their families. And Nehemiah comes and he says, Guys, he calls another prayer meeting, by the way, and he prays and he says, God, give me discernment. And he goes and he comes to them. He calls an assembly and he rebukes them. Man, he just tells it like it is. He says, how can you put a burden on your brothers when God has set us free? You know, that's what we do when we begin to lie and slander and cheat and not forgive people in the body of Christ. We refuse to get, forgive and we can try to avoid people in the congregation. You sit over here. I'm going to sit over here because I don't want to see that person. That's called breaking it apart. That's division. That's ungodly. That's what the devil wants. Satan's biggest enemy in the church, outside of, uh, outside of Satan, the biggest enemy in the church is selfishness. You see, it wasn't an economic problem. It was a heart problem. How can we, we who have been set free, how can we try to bondage one another with unforgiveness and anger and animosity and holding on to petty issues? You see, the early church was a church that sold their possessions and gave to anybody who has need. It was a caring community. It was built on love. And they guarded it. They guarded it so much so that when Ananias and Sapphira lied about being a generous people and lied about being a selfless saint, a, a selfless saint, God struck them dead. He struck them dead for pretending. It wasn't just about the money. It was pretending that they were a part of this selfless community. What do you think God thinks about division in a church? And all of this comes together. So they begin to weep and they work and they war. And God's in all of it. God gets the glory. And 52 days later, man, 
They built the wall. They built the wall in October, maybe it's October 2nd, according to the Hebrew calendar, the wall was finished, the enemies humiliated. What, could have, what should have taken years by man's standard was done in only 52 days. Some commentators can't even believe, they think that's got to be a lie, that it was done in 52 days. It should have taken two years, at least, with all the tools and resources that they, and they didn't even have all that, but they did all of it in 52. Let me tell you something. If God wants to break out in revival in Gina, Louisiana, he don't need our plans, programs, money, finances to do it. It can happen in a short time period. You think, well, pastor, in a few years, if we work on this and we try that and our church gets bigger, we get more money, get more influence. No, no, no. If God's will is that we do it, if we put our weeping and our working and we fight the battle, he's going to get the glory. And then what they did was they returned to the word. So they began to worship. They began to worship. Here's how it ends. They call Ezra out. They build a pulpit. They come, and for three hours, they stand while Ezra reads the Word of God. They return to the Word. They become a people about the Word. And for three hours, they, they read the Word, and they begin to weep because they saw who they really were. They, they saw the nominalism that they had become. And they said, God, help us to match up to the Word of God. And for three hours, they listened. And then for three hours, they began to weep and to worship. How many people have ever been a part of a six-hour worship service? Let me tell you, worship and coming to the house of God is not about a 30-minute time slot on our calendars. It's when the Spirit of God takes over, and it's a, obviously, or actually, it's a general response, a genuine response to the Word of God. It's a genuine response. We say, Jesus has done all of this for me, and I, I, I don't deserve it, but by the grace of God, I receive it. How can I not be amazed by my God? So they had a six-hour worship service, and they kept on going. In fact, they began to weep so much in repentance. The Bible says that godly sorrow, it produces repentance, which leads to joy, right? And they begin, and Nehemiah says, don't just keep weeping. This is a new day. God's grace is for us. Start worshiping. They begin to dedicate the walls. They put the temple singers back in place. They donate thousands and thousands of dollars to get the worship back going and the choir and the priestly robes and get the temple back in order. They said, we are going to keep, and they covenant to God, we're going to keep this thing going because it's all about Him, right? They were hungry for the Word. They began to even meet in Bible studies to study it. They renewed their minds for God. But like any good thing, if it's not based in the Spirit, it fades away. Nehemiah would take a brief trip for a while. He would go back to Persia, and he came back. After being gone for a while, he comes back, and he finds the Levites haven't been funded. He finds that there's people who have put out things in the temple of God and allowed enemies to stay there like a hotel. He's, he finds out that the high priest's son has married a pagan woman. He finds people have been uh, uh, in the foreign marriages and allowed their kids to fall away from God. And he comes back, man, he rebukes them. He yells at them. He pulls out some of their hair even. He says, how dare you? I haven't pulled out anybody's hair yet in ministry, but it's in the Bible, so be careful. He tells those youth parents, how dare you allow your kid to fall away from God after all God has done for us? How dare you? And the last thing, he brings them back together keeps it going. The last thing he does in the end of the chapter, you know what he does? It says he purchased the wood so that the sacrifice in the temple would continue. He ensured that there would always be wood 
for the sacrifice. You know, it's got to be about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We've got to keep that going. If we lose focus that there is an ultimate sacrifice that Jesus, it's not, it's not, we could build all the walls we want. We could have the best singers in the world. But if the sacrifice burns out, and basically he's saying, I want to keep the fire burning. Church, it's got to be about keeping the fire burning at Sanctuary Family Worship Center. It's got to be focused on Jesus. And we're saying, God, fuel the flames, oh God, that you would just move through our congregation and that we would build up the wall. We would weep and that we would work and that we would war. But God, that we're going to keep the fire burning. Amen. Amen. Worship team, would you come? Hallelujah, Lord God. Every head bowed, every eye closed. How can you respond to this message today? I encourage you to pray. Intercede daily for your brothers and sisters. Serve. Serve your community and church family in the name of Jesus. Give. Give to the ministries of the church and the mission and the poor. And then defend. Defend against temptations in your own life and the temptation to slander or gossip or divide. The temptation to slack off. The temptation to quit. We need people who are weeping who are building and working, and who are willing to war. Every family, every student, every child, every man, woman, mom, dad, grandpa, grandma, you matter in your work for the kingdom of God. You matter.